Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles, and if you would, turn to our text this morning. is 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be going through verses 22 through 25. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. The opening of Peter's letter, as we've been getting through it, we're in our fourth week now in a series that's going to take us through the holidays. It's reminded us of God's sovereignty and intentionality in the lives of Christians. We, all of us, we lack rhyme and reason a little bit, some rhyme and reason, to the choices and the decisions that we make as we go through life. But what we understand is that God never does, right? So maybe you guys say things like I do sometimes to people when they ask why I do the things I do. And sometimes I just say, I don't know, it just happened, right? Um, but God's answer to us is never, I don't know, it just happened. God is intentional and he's sovereign and he's so committed to his glory and our holiness That as we read through Peter and as we're getting deeper into the book, we see that he allows us to face things. He allows us to face various trials and sufferings so as to refine our faith and redirect our hope to his grace. So with that, Peter's aim in his letter to these Jewish Christians, what we've learned, these Jewish Christian exiles, is to reassure them that the gospel that saved them will also sanctify them through the hard seasons that they find themselves experiencing. And this holiness that they're growing in, what we're going to see today, this holiness that they're growing in should result in, before anything else, all right, a sincere and earnest love for one another. Because our new birth in Christ gives us a new love for others. So let's just dive right in. First Peter 1, I'm going to pick up in verse 22. We're going to read through verse 25, and then we're going to go back and step through it a little bit. This is what it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the process by which Christians obey Christ to become more like Christ is this process called sanctification. When God justifies us, what he does is a work that only he can do. It's called a, I'm going to use a big word, all right? It's called a monergistic work. He justifies us monergistically, which means it's a work done solely by God alone. We don't have any play in that. But as God sanctifies us, as he grows us in the grace and knowledge of God, as we become more like Christ, he works synergistically with us, which means he works cooperatively with us as we actively turn from the futile ways we used to follow and pursue God with greater faithfulness and increased obedience. So it's what Peter is referring to in verse 22 when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So as a person uh, obeys and lives out the truth of God's word, their soul is being purified. And that takes us back to the beginning of the chapter where our souls are being purified, they're being refined, they're being sanctified. They're less drawn to living out lies, the lies of our former life, because disobedience to God at the end of the day is actually just obedience to a lie. Remember, we talked about that last week. We're always obeying something or somebody. Nobody is obedience neutral. 
And so our lives before Christ were that we lived in obedience to a lie. And what that means, it's believing something false and acting upon that belief. That's what disobedience is. It's, it's essentially, it's a, it's a Ponzi scheme, right? Don't worry, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of anybody that's you know, gotten roped into a Ponzi scheme or anything like that. But basically what it means, it's pursuing something that can't deliver on its promise. It's not true, it's a lie. So obedience here, what Peter is talking about, obedience here means actively hearing and doing. Because here's the situation, all right? You can hear preaching. You're hearing it right now, I I hope. You can hear preaching. You can sing hymns. We just sang some hymns. You can recite scripture. We just recited some scripture. You can show up early on Sundays, which all of you are failing at, by the way, if I'm just going to throw it out there. You can be in the presence of other Christians. I don't know. You're in the presence of other, other Christians right now. But none of that means you're actively hearing and obeying God. But this is what Peter does for us this morning in this particular part of the text. He actually puts some teeth on our obedience. He gives us a way to understand what it looks like when we are obeying the truth and we are being sanctified in that truth. He says is that it needs to result, this obedience to the truth, it needs to result in something. It needs to result in a sincere, he says here, a sincere brotherly love for one another. He just didn't say sisterly, sorry ladies. A sincere brotherly love for one another. So for love, as we look into this, as we think about what that means, a brotherly love, a sincere love, for love to be sincere, what we know about it from scripture is that love must be sacrificial in nature. It has to be something of which we're giving up something for somebody else for it to be sincere. Again, it doesn't mean that the desire now to be loved is, is insincere. It's a good thing. It's automatic that we desire to be loved. We can't turn that off. So this is not saying that the desire to be loved is insincere. It means, what Peter is saying, is that our desire to be loved has been filled by Christ so that we are free to love others sincerely and sacrificially like Christ. And what this kind of love is, is it's opposite of the kind of self-serving, desperate love that characterized our lives before we knew Christ. I mean, the world loves, right? And we can't look out there and say, well, the world just doesn't love. They don't know how to love. No, no, they, they love, but it's a kind of love. It's a desperate love because without Christ, love lacks security, right? Without Christ... We can't depend on a love to, 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 to ride. A, it's not like a leveler, right? We can't put a leveler on like worldly love, on earthly love. Because there's nothing there to keep it intact. There's nothing to hold it together. In Christ, we have an unearthly love. And where that comes from is from this supernatural rebirth that Peter talks about here in verse 23. When he says, since you have been born again. He goes back to that same theme. He talks a lot about being born again. If you were a kid like me growing up in the 70s when things were crazy, um, everybody was, was, you know, just plastering born again stickers like on their bumper. Maybe they didn't do that out here. But there was this thing where everybody was born again. Are you born again? Are you born again? All that scriptural, it's just not real trendy right now to talk about being born again. But Peter kind of talks about it a lot here. So he says here in verse 23, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding 
word of God. So what Peter does here is he makes a contrast here between our physical and our spiritual birth by describing it as the living and abiding seed of God's word planted in the hearts of believers to create an earnest and unearthly love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see the two words that Peter uses there to describe God's word of which this love flows from? He says it's living and abiding. It means it both sparks the life in you and it also sustains the life in you. It's good for us to think about God's word in that way. To think about like the, like the effectiveness of God's word. The living and the breathing and the abiding qualities of God's word. Again, the, the same word that caused light to appear. I mean, I say that a lot here, but like it just strikes me that the same word living inside of us is the same word that God said, let there be light. And like, I don't know how that'll happen. It's just like light, right? I mean, I mean, nothing happens when I say words, right? I mean, except for right now, you guys kind of are just quiet and you're listening. Like that's the only thing that happens when I speak, right? But I mean, he says light and light appears. He causes the sun, the moon, and the stars to come into existence with a word, a word. Animals are formed because he spoke a word. People came into existence because God spoke a word. God's word contains the power of life. It's not like our words. I remember when everyone was super excited when Apple came out with Siri, right? We can talk to our phones and our phones will finally obey us. It just felt like power for everybody, right? You know? Parents are like, finally, somebody who listens to what I say and actually does it, you know? (laughs) Hebrews 4.12 talks about God's word in this way when it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So there's nothing that God's word is incapable of accomplishing in your life. What God's word will do in your life, it will do in your life because it has all the power, all the effectiveness, all the life, all the abiding qualities that we don't have contained in us unless God's word is in us. And then Peter then contrasts God's word with our flesh. So as he's moving along here, he's trying to show the effectiveness of God's word and how as it's living and abiding in us, how it relates to how we love one another And he contrasts it with our flesh and with our weakness. Um, He anchors our our rebirth to the eternal vitality of God's word. Look what he says here. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. And it says there in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. forever. So that's what Peter does. He anchors this vitality, this eternal vitality of God's word by contrasting our earthly existence with grass and flowers, right? That's what he's doing right there. I mean, is there anything weaker than grass and flowers, right? I mean, how about a little more masculine comparison here, Peter? I mean, can I get something a little stronger than that? And he's like, no, Isaiah said it's compared with grass and flowers, so that's where I have to go with this. So the prophet Isaiah, what he does is he compares what limited glory, if we possess any glory, we possess, and we do possess some glory as image bearers, but, we, but he compares it to, to a flower, to the beauty and, and the vitality of a flower. And a flower, flower has beauty, right? 
I mean, we look at flowers and they're beautiful, but they're also easily crushed. They're also easily plucked. They're also easily destroyed. I mean, an infant can crush a flower with their baby foot, right? It's a beautiful flower. Oh, my baby just stepped on it. We're done. You know, the weakest person in the world can pick a flower and destroy it with their bare hands. Like we see that all the time. Grass, grass gets trampled. It gets eaten by grazing animals. We use gas-powered machines to obliterate it, right? Unless you're one of those guys with a non-gas-powered, you know, push mower, which, if we're being honest, means the grass is really mowing you at the end of the day. But that's aside. (laughs) But what Peter's trying to point out here is that there is a frailty to human life. There's a fragility to human life. Some of you are in the throes of experiencing that personally right now. You're in the throes of experiencing the frailty of human life. I can't depend on my body to be healthy forever. I don't know what's going to be happening to a family member next year, this time next year. I mean, some of you have friends and family members who are living testimony to the truth of Isaiah's words. Some of you are living testimony to the frailty of this comparison that Isaiah makes with us being like grass and flowers. Everybody's strong until everybody gets sick. And that's how we see this comparison live out in our lives. And that's why Peter reminds them, why he reminds a people that he knows are suffering. He knows what they're going through. He knows what they're heading into in the culture that God has placed them. What he does is what he's done since verse 1, okay, is he's reminded them of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We just sang that song, this I believe. That's Romans 1.16. And then he says it was through preaching, it was through this method and medium of preaching that God's eternal and everlasting word came to live and abide in your hearts. He's telling the people that right now. So that's why it's important that preachers preach the actual words that can save and sanctify men, women, and children. I mean, you're just going to get me started on something right now, so I'm going I'm to try to put a lid on it if I can. I actually love what, uh, what Scott Allen, one of, our, one of our members over there in Worcester, what he told me recently. Someone asked him if we preach the gospel at Substance. He was telling somebody about the church, and he said, that's the only thing we preach at Substance. Dude, that's epic. That's epic. Um, and look, I, I can say that because that, that doesn't say anything great about us. It doesn't say anything great about me. I mean, again, the gospel just told us that all flesh is like grass, right? But that's what we need to hear. What Isaiah wrote and what Peter quoted from Isaiah, and as we're preaching through this book, that's what you need to hear to understand more about who God is and how he works in your life through the burdens that he brings you through. None of you needs to hear good advice from Big R. I I frankly don't even have good advice. Any good advice I give you is really not very good if it's not anchored in this. But that's not what you need. And you don't need good advice from a preacher either. So if you guys are like tuning in on stations, don't listen to dudes that aren't opening God's word. Because you know what? It doesn't matter what they say. It only matters what they say in as much as they're saying what God has said. And there's an epidemic against that right now, so I'm a little fiery about that because we need the power of God's word. There's no power 
in anything else. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us this. The word of the cross, this is Paul, is folly to those who are perishing. It makes no sense. It's ridiculous that somebody died a death such as Christ, and that is the thing, that is the moment, that is the event that has turned and changed and given hope to all of mankind. He says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, this is what Paul says, it is the power of God. There's nothing else that is the power of God. So without this gospel, this good news that Peter's talking about, without it living and abiding in you, you can't obey the truth. And you can't love your brothers with a sincere love. The question is this, God's word may have saved you, all right, but are you being sanctified and purified by your obedience to it? Because if you are, the byproduct will be a sincere and a brotherly love. Because here's the situation with with loving one another. It's unnatural to us. Loving one another is unnatural. Your natural tendency, my natural tendency is to not love you is to not love our brother. I mean, if you don't believe me, just throw your kid on the playground after church with a bunch of other kids, right? I mean, the natural tendency is not just to wrap arms around everybody and say, hey, how can I help you right now? What can I do for you today? That is not natural. What's natural is our flesh, which is a self-consumed desire for us to just consume, pull things in, hold things close to our own vests. But here's two things we need to understand about this type of earnest love that Peter's Peter's instructing us. And number one is this. Brotherly love is how your sanctification becomes visible. Brotherly love is how your sanctification becomes visible instead of it just being something that you speak with your mouth or affirm or sing or hear. It's how our obedience becomes active. Jesus said in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People see the love of God when God's people love one another because it's unnatural, because it's unearthly. It's an unnatural, unearthly love. And when the church loves its own, what it's doing is it's bearing the resemblance of Christ's love for the church. And that looks like something. Not only to us. I mean, it looks bizarre to us. I mean, when we love each other, there's something about that that just, it's just like, we're just kind of shocked by it. You guys ever feel just kind of eternally shocked when people sacrificially do things for you and think about you and pray for you and help you in your time of need? It's just shocking. It doesn't come natural. And we even push against it because like we want it, but we're like kind of push. We're like, yeah, well, you know, but I, but I don't want you to think I'm helpless and I'm weak. It feels unnatural, but it's one of the ways that our sanctification becomes visible. And when the outside world sees that, it's shocking. It's shocking. So brotherly love is how our sanctification becomes visible. Two is this. Your family of faith is actually your true family. And that's going to step on some toes because Ashland is a generationally stacked town. But your true family are those in your life who are fellow brothers and sisters of the faith, of the cross. doesn't mean that your, that your physical family isn't really your family. But what it means is that serving your church family, it carries an eternal weight because you're all branches 
joined to the same vine. Jesus said in Mark 3, he said this, listen, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So you see the way he identifies himself with people that are obeying the truth, that are living it out, of which it flows out of a love for our brothers and sisters. Jesus attaches himself to us as part of that church family. When you love and serve your church family, you're bearing witness to something. You're bearing witness to the world that life in God's family is lived out lovingly and sacrificially. I remember uh, Brock and Hannah Thompson, they came into Substance uh, about two years ago, I think. And Zach and Jillian Watson had just lost their daughter, Violet. And the Thompsons had not yet come into the church family, but they were moving into the town. And I never, I'll never forget what Brock told me. Brock said, I just was on Facebook, and I, I was so stunned and shocked by the outpouring of love for the Watsons that I just saw on I mean, social media. He wasn't here. He just saw the love and the outpouring that was shown to the Watsons on social media. And I, I remember him making a, a comment to me, something, something along the lines of, like, I looked at my wife and I said, I, I think we found our church. Like, that's what I want to be a part of. The church was bearing witness to the world in that moment that God's love is lived out sacrificially. I remember when my dad passed away in 2007. We were part of a community group out in California. We were on staff at a church out there. And I remember there was this one moment as I'm standing there with my family. And I remember seeing our entire community group crest the hill and walk down the hill. It was 105 degrees. It was August. It was horrible. Um, None of these guys had ever met my dad. They didn't know my dad, but they knew us. They knew us. They sacrificed that day. They they took, they called in. They said, I can't work today. I got to go be with my brother and my sister. Who would do that? Why would they do that? What would benefit them to do that other than the motivating power of God's living and abiding word inside of them, pushing them to show compassion and love to a hurting brother or sister? So that love is just unnatural. It's just challenging. There's risk to that. There's pain. There's rejection. There's time commitments to that kind of love. There's vulnerability. Do you doubt that you can do this? When we talk about this and you start getting a little tight and constricted inside, do you you doubt that you can do this? Do you doubt that you have this love? You know, when your insides are tightening up at the thought of investing in others, with this kind of sincere and brotherly love, do, do you doubt? Is that, is that what fills your heart and your mind? Because if it does, this is what's happening, okay? And this is what's happening in my heart. Our hearts, this is what's happening. You're saying Christ's love in you doesn't matter to you. That's kind of what you're saying. Two, you're saying Christ's love to you was only meant for you. That's what's happening when we pull ourselves back and we don't allow the word that is living and abiding in us flow out in sincere and earnest brotherly love 
to our brothers and sisters. D.A. Carson, he's a professor at Trinity Seminary. He says this, Christians are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. A band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. It's true. It's absolutely true. How important would it have been to the people Peter's writing to to have the benefit of this brotherly love from one another that we're talking about? Why is he telling them to do this? Why is he instructing them to do this? How important would this be for you? How different, listen, how different might your life look like if you had a group of brothers and sisters surrounding you, loving you from a pure heart, caring for you, holding your hand, hearing your heart, walking with you through pain, crying with you through change, providing for you when you don't have enough, having your back when others tear you down, never believing lies about you, asking you how you're doing and actually listening, sending you a text or a message or an email to say, hey, I'm praying for you. Reminding you of God's love when everything in your heart is doubting God's love for you. Sharing in your joys. Being happy with you in your happinesses. Weeping with you when you're weeping. Rejoicing with you in all things. How much would this kind of brotherly love affect you? The way I just said it. How much would it affect this church. What if we were a church that lived out our obedience to the truth by loving one another this way and allowing our community to behold that love and seeing a community that would have no earthly explanation for it? Well, we're told. We're told what would happen. Let's go to Acts 2. You want to make a left and turn with me to Acts 2, verse 42. Acts 2, 42. This is a picture, a portrait of the early church. As the church was building, as churches were being planted and formed, this is a picture of what was happening. Acts 2, 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Remember, this was a time when we had apostles. This was a time when wonders and signs were done through apostles. We don't have apostles today. 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings. And distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And here's the part I wanted to dive into, because we just said, what's the result of this brotherly love? What's the result of this sincere love, of this unearthly love? Well, he says it right here at the very end. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you see what God does? Do you see how God uses this sincere and brotherly love, this obedience to the truth? It's one of the very ways that he uses to evangelize the world, to bring people in, to become disciples of Christ. 
That's how important this love is. I mean, Peter just kind of mentions it almost like in, in a verse and a half, and we just kind of glide over it. But you see the effect that God uses? Do you see how God uses it to the effect that he does, I should say? Do you think you need this kind of love any less earnestly than who Peter was writing to? Because, you know, we read these things and we go, them. And sometimes it's hard to apply to us. I mean, did they have different struggles than we do? They, they didn't, actually, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But here's a couple of sobering things to think through as we get to the end here. And this was really convicting for me this week. If my heart has no pulse for God's people, what Scripture tells us is that it's the same as having no pulse for God. Two, lack of love for God results in lack of love for God's people. So this isn't about us at the end of the day. It's about our relationship and our love for God. And believe it or not, the answer to all this is not get out of here and start stalking and harassing your brothers and sisters, all right? I mean, people need to get home from church without you standing in their yard waiting for them with like lunch gifts and garden tools, right, to help in the yard. That, that's, that's not what we're saying here right now. It's kind of what we're saying, but, you know, don't, don't take it to that end. That's not where we start. The answer, the answer is obedience first to God's truth. And the result will be that you will have a growing desire to love and serve God's people that will come out of you, that will flow out of you. That's why there's not an insert in your bulletin this morning with 10 ways to better serve your brothers and sisters as substance. That's why we're not rolling it out that way to you. And there's actually nothing wrong with that, to be quite honest. Because there are things that we need to do for one another, as we're instructed. But to end with that, to end with that would be like telling you to get on a racetrack without giving you a race car, right? Now look, some of you will feel convicted because you think, I'm not doing that. I'm not loving my brothers and sisters well. But what I would encourage you to do is to first pause with that thought and go back and assess your love for God whether he's your father. And if he is, why you may not be actively loving his family. What I encourage you to do is to first set your mind on Jesus and remember the love he has for his father and for the people that he served. Because what the instruction from Peter here is not to set your minds and set your heart and set your sights on people. Isn't that weird? That's not what he says. If we go back to the last few verses before our text today, what did he say? He actually said, set your hope on the grace that you've been given. What Peter is saying is, set your mind, set your heart, set your focus and your direction and your eye on God and obedience to the truth. That's what he's encouraging us to do. Because here's the thing, at substance, our, our pri- primary aim is is not to get people into the warehouse. Do you guys realize that? Like, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but like there's no billboards that say like substance on it when you're like driving up Main Street into town. Like the primary aim is not to get people into the warehouse. Our primary aim is to get 
with the people God brings into the warehouse. We believe that it's a movement that God has to generate, right? I'm not saying running ads or doing billboards is a big deal. It's not. At the end of the day, it's God who builds his church. He brings people into the warehouse, which then gives us the opportunity for that living and abiding word to be lived out to them. It's to get with people because our lives have been gotten by God. That's the focus. This is the kind of earnest love that comes from the enduring word growing in us as our lives are purified by our obedience to the truth. If you've been born again by God's imperishable seed, it means you possess the very love of God. So if you have any doubts about being able to do that, Peter is saying that you can do that because of what's living and abiding in you. So spend your inheritance. Give it away. What's been given to you, give it away. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus had everything. Jesus gave everything. And by the way, he's the only person in existence who is perfectly justified to not give anything. 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Let's become poor for one another in this church. You know what I mean. Don't take that too far. But you know what I mean. Let's become poor for one another. Let's give of what, from what we've been given. Let's let that living and abiding word that has been planted in us with imperishable seed, let's, let's let that flow out because we don't have any other marketing plan at the church. And we want people to see the love and the grace of God being displayed and being lived out and being enlarged in the hearts of God's people so that they might know God's grace. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that you've given us a living and abiding word, that we're not just grasping after straws, that we're not just opening up fortune cookies on Sundays and trying to find pissy phrases for us to live our lives from. But thank you that your word is living and abiding and it remains forever. And it is the good news that was preached to us, that has changed us, that has saved us, that continues to sanctify us. Lord, allow this love to do a work in us that flows out in an earnest and sincere love for our brothers and sisters. Let us give of ourselves to those who you have given everything to. Let us have a sacrificial love for our church family. Let us be a bright, beaming beacon of hope for a tired and weary world that looks on and needs this salvation implanted in their own hearts. Lord, thank you that it's possible. Thank you that even now as we pray, we know that your spirit is speaking to us and changing us. So Lord, we ask these things and thank you for these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.